Jesus came to God, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. good to see all of you here and to worship God together, to sing his praises and to come together, however cold it is outside. We know it's approaching. The, uh, the winter weather is, is on its way. You can feel that as you walked in. It also means that the holiday season is coming, the Christmas and Thanksgiving season. And speaking of Thanksgiving, in just two weeks we'll celebrate that. But next Sunday, one week from tonight, we're going to have a Thanksgiving and prayer service at our South Street campus. And so it's, uh, all, all, it doesn't matter what campus you attend or what service you attend. All Chapel Streeters are invited. Bring a friend if you'd like. We're going to spend some time worshiping uh, and singing and praying and focusing on all that we have to be grateful for. I don't, I don't know about you, but it's so easy for me to slip into thinking about all the things that are going wrong, that I think we lack, that I wish were different. And we'll spend some time next Sunday evening at our South Street Sanctuary just worshiping and thanking God for all that he's given us. And so hopefully you'll make plans to join us at that service if you can. Let's, let's pray now and ask God to speak to us through his word. Father God, we've been singing your praises that you alone are holy and worthy. There's no one besides you. And that your love is infinite we forget these things, and sometimes we even doubt them. So as we gather here now together today in this moment, we know and believe that you're here, you're present with us. We ask that you speak to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 2016, uh, Pew Research did a survey of uh, kind of the religious uh, status of, of people in America. Different denominations, Roman Catholics, Protestants, uh, and even those with no religious affiliation. A couple of interesting statistics. Those, among those surveyed with no religious affiliation, 72% said they believe in heaven, that heaven exists. I find that interesting. 72% of no, and then, and then this is even more interesting. 78% of those surveyed with no religious affiliation whatsoever believe that if there is a heaven, they will be there. Think about that for a minute. More people believe they'll be in heaven than believe heaven exists. And when asked further about why, most people responded by saying, well, I'm a pretty good person. It's common, isn't it, to hear people say things like that? I'm a pretty good person. You know, I'm not perfect, but I'm better than that guy. I don't do what she does. I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. And God must grade on some sort of moral curve, so I'm pretty sure that I'm good enough. Without ever thinking about what do we mean by good? We throw that word around, you know, he's a good guy, she has a good heart, they're good people, this is good for society. But we don't really ever spend any time talking about what, what do we mean by good? By what standard do we evaluate if something is good or if it's bad? And if there is a moral curve, how do you know if you're ever good enough? What's the cutoff point? We just throw the word around as if that settles the matter. This question of goodness is at the heart of, uh, of our passage today. We're in a series called Following the King, looking at who Jesus is and what it means for us to follow him from the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to come to a story, an encounter between a man and Jesus that's, at least in its title, going to be familiar to many of you. We call it the story of the rich young ruler. And sometimes I think our, our presumption to be familiar with something, if you grew up in the church, you probably heard this story before, and sometimes our, the fact that we presume to know gets in our way of hearing what God would actually say to us. So hopefully that's not the case for us as we come to this story. 
Let's look at Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 27. And he was setting out on his journey, and a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Again, I think it's a familiar story to many of you. But what do we know about this guy? Well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke each tell us an account of this story, this encounter with Jesus. And when you put those encounters together, you get some details that they don't all include individually. We all three make it clear he's a rich man. He has great wealth, great possessions. Uh, Luke's gospel tells us that he's a ruler. Influential. The Greek word simply means that he was an influential person in the community. Maybe he had a civic position, authority, but just by virtue of his moral goodness and his wealth, people respected him. He was a leader, a ruler. And Matthew's gospel tells us he was a young man, so not an old guy. Timothy Keller, in his commentary on the passage, says he's probably also good looking. <laughs> That's speculation, right? But he got, you have a rich, influential, well respected, young, good looking guy. Like he's a good guy. In, in, the, in the team photo of good guys, he's like the team captain. He's clearly in the photo. He's a good guy. And this good, well-respected man comes to Jesus, and he kneels down. That's the right posture. And he comes to the right person, Jesus, and he asks the right question. He asks about eternal life. So think about it. You've got a good guy who everybody thinks is a good guy, comes to the right person with the right posture, asking the right question, but he still goes away sad. Something's going on here that we need to pay attention to. By all accounts, it's a very good man. But he comes to Jesus on his knees and says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? What he really means is, what else do I have to do? I've done a lot, but I still feel like I'm missing something. I mean, I've, I've made a good living. I've built a good business. I have a good family. People respect me. And that's all well and good. But it feels like it's not enough. You ever felt that way? I'm missing something? Years ago, I remember coaching flag football uh, with a guy, and our sons were on the same team, and it was getting to know him, and he, we went to lunch to get to know each other, and he said essentially the same thing. I built a business, my family's doing well, I, 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 and I, by all accounts, I have a good life, but I just feel like I'm missing something. This is the question of goodness. The question of goodness. He calls Jesus good teacher, and Jesus turns it right back around and says, uh, why do you use that word? That word. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. No, that's not what he says, right? He says, why do you use that word, good? Nobody's good but God alone, which any good Jew would know that's true. Jesus is basically saying, do you know who you're talking to? 
Do you know what you're asking and who you're asking it of, really? Let's look at verses 17 and 18 again. He was setting out on his journey. A man ran up and knelt. That's the right posture. He's, whoop, go back one slide. My fault. I know. I'm, I'm, I'm technologically challenged, but I'm getting better. He knelt. That's the right posture. And asked him, good teacher, what must I do? That's important. He says, do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. There's a lot going on here in these couple of sentences. I think most people in our culture, probably many of you, think about goodness as if it's some sort of morality scale. Uh, maybe like a morality ladder. See if I can make this work. And I'll draw it for you, what I mean. We think about, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's people that are better and worse than others. There's good people, there's bad people, and there's people in between. And so we have God up at the top, and of course God is perfect, and he's, he is, there's nobody good but God alone, we just saw that. And then, you know, there's this ladder that we ascend, and down here would be, uh, you know, I don't know, somebody who's really bad, Hitler, maybe Aaron Rodgers, somebody that's just really a bad person. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I know you're going to email me, don't, because I, I won't care. But, but only kidding. You know, somebody that we think is so. But then we put people on the scale, right? We we put people like where where would the apostle Paul be? He's got to be a good person, you know. Paul would be somewhere in there. Who's else? Mr. Rogers, that's a good person, right? Mr. Rogers has got to be on here somewhere. Mother Teresa, she's got to be on here somewhere. Maybe Mother Teresa. Who else? Maybe would we say Billy Graham, Billy G? He's got to be on the scale somewhere. I don't know. Nelson Mandela. Give me another name that you think somebody who think, people think is good. We could make the list, right? Fill it out with good people. Where do you rank them? Where do they go? Well, we'd have to, we, that'd be an interesting thought experiment, right? To put them in different places, to rank them on the ladder. Here's the question. What about you? Where do you put yourself? Well, I'm not going to put myself ahead of Nelson Mandela or Billy G, right? I got to put myself south of those people. But when you read the New Testament, you find out something really interesting. Paul says he is the chief of sinners. Now where do you rank yourself? If we're all down here, right? But we think about the ladder as if it's some sort of, you know, scale of moral goodness. And, you know, we're all on the ladder somewhere and we're climbing based on our efforts to be better. And God is, he's looking down and, and he, he appreciates the effort. And he's trying to help us climb a little higher. And I think in a way, that's what this man thinks. He comes to Jesus, and he, and he has a good life. He knows he's on the ladder. He knows he's not at the bottom. He's a good man. But I'm missing something. What else? What else? Tell me what else, and I'll do it. I want to climb a little higher. The problem is, it's a, it's a false premise. It's a ladder to nowhere, Jesus is going to show him. And it's impossible climb. We'll come back to that in a minute, assuming I can make the board work. But going back to the text for just a second, this question of goodness, Jesus moves right from this exchange into quoting the Old Testament law. Look at verses 19 through 20. You know the commandments. He's referring to the Ten Commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. It's a bold claim. I've kept them all. But if you pay attention here, this man claims to have obeyed all these laws. Jesus doesn't look at him and go, liar! And start, he could have quoted places where he's broken law, but he doesn't do that. He seems to accept the, the man's assertion. Take him at his word. 
this, this man is saying, you know, I've done everything right. I've been successful in business. I've respected in society. I'm morally upright and I'm faithful in my religion. But I just can't help feeling like I've missed something. What's missing? Well, actually, in the way Jesus addresses him, he's, he's pointing out what's missing by omission. He quotes from the last half of the Ten Commandments. He quotes five of the last six commandments in this passage. But he doesn't quote any of the first four. Do you know what the first commandment is? Want to come on up here? I'll give you a mic. Anybody want to put on spot? What's number one? You shall have no other gods before me. And that's important. Jesus, in the next, the next three, keep, remember the Sabbath, they keep it holy. We don't take the Lord's name in vain. He's talking about your vertical relationship with God. The ones he quotes are your horizontal relationship. It's as if he's saying, look, I haven't defrauded anybody with my wealth. I haven't abused anybody with my wealth. I haven't exploited anybody. I haven't murdered. I haven't committed adultery. I've done all those things on the horizontal level. But Jesus is really asking him about those things he doesn't quote, his vertical relationship. Because when he says, what else do I have to do? I'm missing something. Yes, what is he missing? He's missing his relationship with God because he thinks it's something he has to do. What else do I have to do? I built my financial resume. I built my, you know, relational portfolio. I want to build my spiritual portfolio, Jesus. Give me the three steps to live my best life now. Give me the five things. Give me the 10 keys. Give me the stuff and I'll do it. And Jesus is trying to tear that whole thing down. Because what you find out is that really, if you go back to this ladder analogy for just a minute, this ladder as I said, it's a ladder to nowhere. It's broken. You can't climb it. In fact, actually, it's not even there, right? We're all, we're all down here somewhere. Now, we're haggling over our goodness. I, the Bible, does, there are people that are better than other people. Some of you live better, morally up, more upright lives than others. It, it, there are good people and bad people on a relative scale in society, in the world. But we're all talking about this tiny one-half and one-tenth of one percent when God is infinite and holy and perfect. You can't climb it. And if you could, you'd be no closer to him, is his primary point. Goodness doesn't work that way, which is Jesus' point when he says, why do you call me good? Do you understand who I am? Only God is good. He's pointing out that what you lack, what you think you're missing, is a relationship with God, and that's not something you accomplish. That's not something you achieve. That's not something you buy or earn. This brings us to a loving diagnosis. This guy said, I've done all these things. I know I'm missing something. Tell me, Jesus. And Jesus is going to tell him. And what he tells him is going to crush him. He's already hinted at it when he says, why do you call me good? Look at verses 21 through 22. And Jesus, a couple of key words here for us, looking at him, loved him, and said to him, you lack one thing. I'm sorry, but I can't read that without thinking of the movie City Slickers. Anybody seen that movie? Like three people seen the movie? Last hour I was like, huh? Remember, remember Billy Crystal? What's the meaning of life? And curly Jack Palance goes, this. He goes, your finger? No, one thing, right? That's what you got to figure out. Jesus says, you lack one thing. He's listed a whole bunch of things, which is a little bit curious, isn't it? Because don't we, doesn't Jesus say you're saved by grace? Aren't we told, isn't the gospel that we don't earn it, we don't achieve? Why does Jesus list these commands? Because he's playing off of what the guy assumes to be true, but isn't. That's not how you would get a relationship with God. Because he has kept those things, and, it ha and he still feels like he's missing something. One thing you lack, go sell all you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, 
He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Whoa. This is a shocking statement. I don't know what the man expected when he knelt down in front of Jesus, but it wasn't this. Sell everything? This is especially shocking in a culture that saw wealth and possessions as a sign of God's blessing and favor. We don't always see it that way in our culture. It's increasingly popular in our culture for people to say things like, well, the wealthy must be exploiting the poor. If you're super rich, it must be because you cheated to get there or you've done something that you should be held accountable for. But in Jesus' day, people saw those with great wealth as favored by God. This man has spent his life trying to please God, and he likely saw his possessions as a sign that God is pleased with him. And now Jesus says, give that away. What? Give it all up. We were talking about it at our preaching team meeting last week about what the, what's really going on here. Pastor Brian and Pastor Sterling and Andrew and those of us and Joe that preach, we're sitting around a table talking about this. What's happening here? And Brian said something interesting. Pastor Brian said, it's like he's reached into this man's heart and grabbed hold of his core identity and pulled it out and held it up to him. Give me this. It's not the money. It's what it means to this guy. This is who I am. This is how I know I'm significant. And Jesus just said, I want that. That's why he goes away sorrowful and disheartened, full of grief. My identity, my sense of self, you, you're asking for that? That's why you resist that. If somebody messes with your identity, we dig in. We put up defenses. We don't want to hear it. And every one of you has that one thing. So do I. The thing in which you feel like, I can't live without this. this. If this was taken from me, this would undo me. For many parents, it's your kids. In our culture, raising successful children is the ultimate competitive sport. We, 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 we live vicariously through the success of our children. What is the thing? That you feel like, you know, I believe in God, but this is my, I need this. Whatever that thing is you feel like I cannot live without, that is your functional God. And that's essentially what Jesus is saying to this guy. You lack one thing. It's interesting, too, this story follows right on the heels of an encounter with Jesus and a bunch of children. Children in our culture, as I mentioned, are kind of worshipped. They weren't in the first century. They were raised, but they weren't worshipped. They weren't praised like that. Parents didn't build their identity on their kids in the first century. And the, Jesus, the kids are coming to Jesus, and the disciples are kind of shooing them away. And Jesus says, no, no, let the kids come to me. And then he says, unless you become like these children, you will not enter the kingdom of God. And there's a fascinating contrast between little children and this rich young ruler. Children are dependent. This man is financially independent. Children don't have status. This man has status and wealth to spare. Children need, they need someone to take care of them, to provide for them. This man thinks he's just fine. It might seem harsh to us what Jesus asks, but don't miss the fact that he says these hard things because he loves him. This is so important. He looked at it. By the way, the Greek word for looking there doesn't mean just he physically saw that he's there. It means he saw into him. He, saw, he perceived what's going on beneath the surface. Like he looked into his soul. He sees him. And he sees you too. And he loved him. If you'd like to take notes or highlights, circle that word. He looked at this self-assured, 
good man and loves him. And then he says something that sounds impossibly harsh. Precisely because he loves him. The hard thing Jesus says, sell everything, give it up, give it all up for me, is because he loves him. It's because of his love that Jesus says hard things to you. We tend to think in our culture that to be loving means to always affirm, to never disagree, to never confront or challenge. It's unloving to tell somebody they're wrong. That is not biblical love. The gospel is, the first part of the gospel is, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That, that's, not, that's not popular. That's not affirming. But it's loving. And are justified freely by his grace. Romans 3, 23 and 24. If you've ever felt Jesus say something hard to you in the, in the scriptures or in your quietness of your own heart, it's because he loves you. And he knows we resist and chafe against that. That we don't want to hear it. Praise God, frankly, that he loves us enough to say what's hard for us to hear. Because if following Jesus meant being interested in spiritual things and being a morally good person, then why would this guy go away sad? He is interested in religious and spiritual things. He's asking religious questions. He is a morally good person, but he goes away sad. And if Jesus just wants this man to feel good about himself, which, by the way, I think many people would just think that's Jesus' primary agenda is to make people feel good about themselves as they are. If that's Jesus' agenda, to make you feel good about yourself, then he failed with this guy. Right? What's going on here? The man doesn't go away angry or indignant or defiant, but sorrowful. That's too much, Jesus. You're asking too much. I can't do that. You know, actually, in wanting his wealth more than he wanted God, this guy wants too little. We think about it like that's too much to ask. That's a lot to ask. I mean, I don't know if I could give that up. Can you think about it? Can you imagine it? Jesus is saying to this man, can you imagine no possessions, no land, no servants, no mansions, all of it gone, just me. Could you live that way? No 401k, no kids' college funds, no summer home, no condo in Florida, no Instagram-worthy vacations. Could you give all that up and just Jesus? You've all got our thing, our one thing, right? You don't want to know what one of mine is? Would you like to know? I'm not going to tell you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Honestly, it's the church. It's being a pastor. It's the success of the church. Be, could, I feel like sometimes God says to me, could you give that up? Could it just be us? We've all got our thing is the point. And it's not that Jesus wants to take away everything that you love. That's not the point. It's you'll never know him. You'll never experience his grace. You'll never know his love until you lay that on the altar. Until you say, you can have this too, Jesus. And what you receive is far greater. What this guy wants is actually too little, not too much. Reminds me what C.S. Lewis wrote in his essay, The Weight of Glory. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We are settling for wealth and earthly status and reputation. And it's a bad deal. You're losing in the exchange, Jesus says. 
We don't think of it that way because we have our, we, we're, we're, our we're, it's a radical reorientation of our priorities that's required. Jesus loves this guy and knows what he's missing and tells him what he's missing, but he just can't bring himself to do it. And it sounds impossible. This brings us to the last point, the impossible made possible. Jesus' call feels impossible. <laughs> I talked to a guy after the last service who said that he had a friend that he was witnessing to in college, and they were both coming to faith in Jesus and discovering what it meant. And this guy said, oh, boy, I feel like I have to give up a lot. And he goes, well, for example, like what? He goes, well, I really like shoes. I said, what? He goes, yeah, I mean, I like shoes. And I got like a, a, a couple dozen pairs, and I like to pay a couple hundred dollars for my shoes, and I'm afraid Jesus is going to ask me for my shoes. <laughs> well, let you keep one pair. I don't know. <laughs> I think that's funny, but the point is, like, it wasn't the shoes. What it really was, if you dig beneath the surface, it's, I want to call the shots in my life. I want to buy what I want when I want. I don't want anybody messing with me. I want to be able to have my stuff. We all got our thing. Maybe for you, it's not related to wealth at all. And it feels impossible that God would ask for this. Because often, those, they're not bad things. Let's look at verses 23 through 27. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Stop there for a minute. Well, and the disciples were amazed at his words. This word amazed does not mean, does not mean uh, wow, that's cool, amazing. It means dumbfounded, confused. Like, what? Because remember, in that culture, the rich were considered favored by God. And Jesus says it's difficult for the rich, favored by God, to enter the kingdom of God. That makes no sense. What are you talking about, Jesus? They're amazed. They're, they're confused by this. It makes no sense to them. You know, we might think, yeah, that's good, Jesus. Those rich have been exploiting the poor too long. It's good that you're not letting them in your kingdom. They, finally, they get what's coming to them. That's not how the disciples respond. They're confused by this. And Jesus said to them, again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciple says, well, that clears things right up. Thank you, Jesus, for that clear analogy. Let's go, right? No. They're even more astonished. Same root word. What are you talking about? And they ask this question, this fascinating question. Then who can be saved? Right? If not that guy, the wealthy guy, the good guy, the moral guy, if he can't get in, we're all doomed. Who gets in, Jesus? And Jesus says, nobody. It's impossible with man. Left to you to climb the ladder? You don't get in. It is impossible. But with God, it is possible. Think about that. Left to you, it is impossible. You can't climb high enough. We say things like money opens doors, money talks, right? And there's no question that, historically speaking, it's an advantage to have wealth in human history. <laughs> Nobody would deny that. Jesus is saying, this is the one door it doesn't open. You don't buy your way in. You don't earn your way in. You don't you know, accomplish your, your way in. You don't achieve it. It cannot come to you that way. That thing that you feel like you lack is a relationship with God. And that's not a door that you kick down or force open with your status or your wealth or your moral goodness. It only comes to you by grace. It's only possible if you receive it by grace. It cannot be something you clutch for yourself. 
And this phrase, camel going through the eye of a needle, scholars have historically twisted themselves into knots trying to reinterpret what this means. There was a gate in the city of Jerusalem called the, the eye of a needle, the needle gate. And it was, the camel could not make it through that gate, so the story goes, unless they were stripped down of all their baggage. And Jesus might be using that metaphor. The problem with that is that the needle gate didn't exist in the first century when Jesus it was built much later. So it's probably not likely Jesus is referring to that because they wouldn't have gotten it. It's a euphemism. Can a camel go through the eye of a needle? But some, some have said, well, the word for camel in Greek is very close to the word for rope. So, you, you know, it can't get a rope through the eye of a needle. No, no, it's, just take him at his word. He's using a euphemism that sounds ridiculous, which is his point. It's ridiculous for you to think you can earn your way to heaven. That you could do enough. You can't. Only God can. That's his point. It's possible with God. The whole point is, oh, nobody on your own, nobody gets in. Unless God intervenes, and he has, and he does. That's the cross. He lives a life of moral perfection that you could not live. He dies in your place, a death you deserve, to open the gates to eternal life and joy and grace and mercy and peace to come in, that you could be with him, the relationship that you want, that you shall have no other gods before me, the first commandment, and the only way you have a relationship with that God is through the grace that he provides in Jesus Christ. That's it. No other way. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way, only when he gives us new hearts to abandon everything for Christ will we be free from our personal forms of idolatry and yield to the principles of his kingdom. Only when he gives, not we accomplish or we achieve or we earn. Tim Keller in his commentary about this very passage says that Jesus is the ultimate rich young ruler. Think about it. This man has status. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. This man has wealth. Jesus is the owner of all that exists. And Philippians chapter 2 tells us that he made himself nothing, Jesus, laid down his status and his wealth and his riches and his position and his power to become a servant, obedient to death, even death on a cross. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, what some people call the great exchange. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. The exchange is worth it. This man desired too little. And again, this, this passage is not really about money. It is about the ability that wealth has to blind you to your spiritual poverty. That's the danger. And I, you don't want to know one of my burdens for our church, for our church family and our community? We don't think of ourselves this way, but we are the wealthiest one half of 1% in the world. We're very comfortable in Chicago's land suburbs. I mean, I, you know, I know there's some uncomfortable things going on in the political world with masks and vaccines, and I don't like that. It's, it's infringing on my freedoms. But when you think about where we live and what we experience, we are extremely comfortable people. Wealthy, beyond imagination for most of the people in the world. And when the Bible says blessed are the poor, it doesn't mean that if you're poor, God likes you more. It means the poor don't are, have, at least they have the danger of thinking that they're fine removed. They know they're not fine. They know their desperate need. And sometimes those of us who live in an affluent society and we only compare ourselves to each other think we're fine. And you're not fine. 
And you know you're not blind. And neither am I. That's the story, right? This man who, but he's like, he's like right out of the Chicago suburbs. Wealthy, affluent, well-respected, lots of followers, influential. I, I built a good life. What, but I'm missing something. What do I have to do? And Jesus goes, let's tear the whole thing down and start over. And receive what I offer you by grace. If you'll lay that down, whatever the thing is, right? You, you have no idea what he's offering you. We are far too easily pleased, to use Lewis's words. And the exchange is worth it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this story, which is familiar to us, and sometimes we think we know what's in there, but I know you have something to say to every one of us because every person here has something or someone that's competing to sit on the throne of our hearts. Something we're trying to build our identity and our sense of self and security on. And you know exactly what that is. And because you love us, Jesus, you look into our hearts and you say, give me that. And Lord, we don't want to because it's hard. It feels like our identity's taken away. But thank you that in your mercy, what you offer us is far greater. The identity we would have in you of being loved perfectly by you, of knowing your grace and forgiveness, the freedom and joy we have in you is greater than all the riches of the world. We thank you, Jesus. We praise you in your name. Amen.